Hello, it's Vikas Pota, Chairman of the Vaki Foundation. You are listening to a session from our Global Education and Skills Forum, a place where leading politicians, businesses, philanthropists, activists, and of course, the world's best teachers share, debate, and discover new ways for education to transform our world. Keep the global conversation going and share your thoughts on the topics discussed with the hashtag GESF. Okay, good, uh, good afternoon, uh, everyone. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks for coming to our session. Uh, my name's Andrew Jack from the, uh, the Financial Times. It's a great pleasure to be here and to be with um, Annette Dixon, uh, Vice President of the World Bank for Human Development. Um, it's a very good mix of, of themes and organizations, I think, as well, because, of course, the FT is very interested in investment in human capital in its widest sense. I used to write about health, and now I do about education. Um, so a very interesting intersection here at this forum. And, of course, the bank came out last year for the first time with a human capital index. So, Annette, we're going to talk shortly, a sort of fireside chat without a fire. Um, but I think, first of all, there's a very short film to kick us off, if you want to play that, please. Great. So, uh, Annette, thanks very much for coming. So, human capital, investing in human capital. So, so let's start with the basics. What is human capital? Well, I think um, we've always measured the size of economies uh, by the investment in the capital of a country or of the world as a whole. And we always measure, measured the built capital, you know, the stuff that's invested in infrastructure and things which make the economy go in terms of logistics and all of that. And then about 20 years ago, we started measuring natural capital, which included all the endowments that we have, land and forests and, and fisheries and so on. And a, a recent innovation is we've started measuring uh, human capital, which is the wealth that's invested in our people. And that's been a really important development because we've, we've, the World Bank has known for a long time that human development is important. What we hadn't understood, I don't think, you know, uh, policymakers at large, is just how important human capital is as a share of total wealth. And it's, it's a good question because, I mean, yes, you would think instinctively it makes sense investing for the future. So is it, is it, is it fundamentally a kind of measurement challenge that's been the break in the past that's explained why it's not got the same focus and priority perhaps as more hard infrastructure? Well, I think there's two things that have happened that have changed it. One is we're measuring it, um, and, and when you measure it, you just see how important it is. So you, you, in, rich, in the richest countries in the world, uh, human capital accounts for 70% of the wealth of the richest countries in the world. And that's kind of amazing, because if you think of a rich country, you think about the fabulous infrastructure, you look at where we are here in Dubai as an example, um, in developing countries, it's only 40%. So it makes up a huge amount of the difference between the developing and the developed world. But the other thing is that we actually have now really uh, a lot of evidence on the human development outcomes that are critical for a country's productivity and growth. And so this index measures those human development outcomes that have a direct evidential link to productivity and growth and, and where we have a lot of data across countries. So the first time, for the first time ever, a country can look at its human capital index and figure out how much growth, uh, economic growth and development it's missing out on because its, it's potential of its kids is, is not fully developed. So um, 
some people may not be so familiar with specifically what the bank has been doing in this area. To just talk us through over the past, perhaps, whatever it is, a couple of years through the thought process of trying to focus on this and develop some sort of metrics around it, what's been done and why? Well, I think it, it sort of started with us starting to understand the importance of development of children, health and education outcomes. So, for example, stunting. Stunting, as we know here as educators, um, is incredibly important for the development of the child and the child's ability to learn because it affects the development not just of the child physically but the neural pathways. And so children that are severely stunted have real development uh, challenges. And once we started measuring how much stunting there is in some countries in the world, we started to realise it was actually a, a, big, a big challenge. So we put together this index from those uh, things that we know are critical. Not all of them are in the index. So if you look at this index, it's pretty simple because it's where we have data for a large number of countries, but everything that's in the index is actually something that's critical for the country's development. So it includes, firstly, uh, the numbers of kids who survive to age five. And that's important in about 30 countries in the world where uh, infant mortality is still uh, a, a serious issue. Then the next measure is stunting, which is really important. And, and we find even in some middle-income countries that don't have food insecurity, there's still very high rates of stunting. And we can talk about that if, if, if you wish. So that's really important. And then the most innovative and most interesting part of the index for the education community is a new metric that we've developed called learning adjusted years of schooling. And this was possible because uh, you know, for years, the international community has measured education based on the numbers of kids participating in, in education. And there's been huge success in uh, school access in the world, although there's still you know, a couple of hundred million children not in school. But what we've done, which is new, is we've taken all the test scores that countries have and put them into a harmonized database. And we have this new metric. So a country can look at the human capital index and say, you know, out of a possible 14 years, we have our kids in school, say, for 10 or 11 years. But we're only getting seven or eight years of learning equivalents from that. So we're actually missing out on years of learning. And then the last thing that we measure uh, is uh, the probability that a kid leaving school at age 18 survives to age 60. And the reason we put that in is because that's uh, a measure of how productive that, that child will be in their working years. And, and it's not a great measure in the sense that it doesn't capture everything, but it's an important proxy for health and disability issues which affect uh, the ability of a worker to be productive all of their working life. And, and to be clear, this is, as it were, secondary data. It's a, it's a collection of other people's data, right? There's nothing... It's country's own data, yeah. yeah. But that said, I mean, obviously there can be some differences perhaps in the years of collection, in the reliability of some of the different say, data sets, in the weightings you choose to give to them to come up with something composite. Was there a lot of internal and external debate well, around that? Well, we went through quite... Uh, I mean, a lot of discussion with agencies that collect data. We verified data with countries. Um, but I think that the, the index itself is pretty robust because it's based, the weighting is based on the, the contribution that that outcome makes to uh, productivity and growth. 
So when, when a country looks at the index, they can see out of a sort of... Uh, so we ranked all the countries from zero to one, and in fact, no country made one. But, but uh, depending on where you are, it's the, uh, prob the, it's the uh, extent to which you've developed the full potential of a child born today through to when she's 18. And so uh, if a country is halfway in the index, so at 0.5 to the frontier, that country is missing out on about 1.5% of economic growth and development per year. So it actually has a very concrete impact on a country's development. And that's the thing which is actually making it really important for policymakers uh, who, who don't normally think about education and health as something which is really going to drive the country's full development. So how is it starting to mobilize? So you published the first version of the index uh, last uh, autumn, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, what, what was the reaction by different countries, ministers, civil society? Well, it really has, um, I think it really has attracted the attention of policymakers uh, beyond the education and health ministries and social protection labor ministries. And it's really, I think, created a, a, a very important discussion at the government level. And so a number of countries have actually decided that they want to accelerate progress. Um, uh, they look, they're taking the data for their whole country and they're looking at what's happening within their country. So who's, who's missing out? Um, because a lot of countries have really good uh, education and health outcomes for some part of the population, but the, they might have a long tail of children that are being left behind. Um, and it, I think it's engaging ministers beyond health and education. It's what we're calling a whole-of-government discussion. Because if you think about it, you can't fix the education system by only focusing on, on the, you know, the education outcomes are more than the, the sum of what's happening in the education system. So if you, if you collated the, in aggregate, the rankings, I mean, any surprises amongst the, let's say, the, the highest and the lowest ranked? Well, one of the things that's really interesting about the index is even advanced economies are looking at it and thinking, well, we could do better. Um, and, and so they need to deconstruct where they're not doing so well. So for a lot of countries, they realize they, need, they can do a lot to improve the quality of learning. That's a big one across all income uh, countries. But others have actually got some specific challenges, like some countries realize that their adult mortality rates are actually not as good as they were, and they need to actually do something about it. So I always say there's something in this index for every country to learn from. And, and so drilling down, I mean, tell us a few perhaps examples, maybe you want to disaggregate by health and education, but some interesting countries that are... Yeah, well, I, I mentioned the stunting because this is really important for education. Um, and here, you know, we always think of stunting as actually something which is um, directly related to malnutrition and food insecurity. But actually, it's a lot more complicated than that. And stunting can be, it's mostly caused by nutrition but it can also be caused by pollution, air pollution, um, uh, contaminated water, and so on, which is really important for a child's ability to um, uh, absorb nutrients. Um, and it can also be caused by sustained exposure to violence and conflict. And so it, it, it really 
uh, when a country, a middle-income country, looks at their data and they see that they've got a lot of children who are not actually doing that well, they need to actually look deeply at what's happening. It might be to do with lack of access to sanitation, for example. It's not, it's not shortage of food in many cases. It is in some countries in the world, for sure, but not always. Give us a couple of examples of countries maybe from, you know, from lower income but also perhaps from upper income which are performing well or well, it, changed a lot maybe. And that's the other really important part of the discussion is which countries have actually managed to change these things quite quickly in less than 10 years, for example. So on stunting, there's been some really um, uh, good progress in some countries. And, and so one of the things we're trying to do is to tell stories from these countries like... Uh, Peru, um, Senegal, these are examples of countries that have actually substantially brought their stunting rates down. They've halved, halved their stunting rates, so the numbers of children who are, um, uh, uh, their weight for age is, is, is too small. They've actually managed to halve these rates in less than 10 years, and that, so that's pretty good progress, I think. Similarly, um, there are countries that have improved their learning outcomes in a relatively short amount of time, and, and um, uh, we, we um, quote, you know, we quote different examples. Vietnam is a case that, that comes to mind. But there's a lot, there's a lot of good experience that that actually can be relevant for other countries. And so one of the things we're trying to do is set up a network of countries. Um, there are about 57 countries that have joined this initiative to share their experience on how they can actually speed up progress on their human capital outcomes. Mm -hmm. Any examples from you know, Europe, for example, where you've seen significant progress? That's maybe an interesting model for others. Well, I think, I think there are some countries that have actually come a long way and which you know, have really come out quite high in the index, given where they started. And I, I, was, um, uh, I used to work and live in Central Asia, and I was really interested to see that Kazakhstan came out very well um, relative to where it was. You know, Kazakhstan is a country that doubled its income level within a very short... In the three years I lived in Kazakhstan, they're oil rich. They doubled their income level, but they still had... Majority of their houses didn't have inside sanitation, so they've actually done a lot in a short amount of time. I lived in Kazakhstan 15 years ago, so it's developed a lot. But there are other countries that similarly had uh, really um, uh, had long sustained focus, and I think it tells us a lot about countries that have improved uh, and what what are the kinds of things that they've done that have actually made that happen. So the index is a useful starting point, let's say, for a government, for a minister of health or education, for instance. What, what might be the next steps? How much of a mechanism is there to sort of then drill down and identify some interventions that might be you know, invested in as a focus or shared and modified for applications in other countries? Yeah, it was two, a, a couple of things that we can help countries to do. Firstly, take the data for the country as a whole and look at what it looks like for different populations. So. Um, for different income groups, uh, for geographical areas, and for different administrative units of government. These are all important pictures to develop, to, to understand what the role of inequality is in driving these outcomes. Because often, uh, the, you know, countries may have really good outcomes, but a very dispersed um, range. And one of the things we know in these rankings, the countries that do well are the countries that actually don't have a long tail of children that are left behind. And they've done really well in bringing up 
uh, and getting good equity in the outcomes that they have. So this subnational picture is really important. Where are the pockets of people who are being left behind? And, and so the public policy challenge is how do you reach the poor or the poorest um, often, uh, in many cases? Second thing is actually to help countries figure out what they could do to go faster. And here, one of the things that we try to do is to extrapolate. If we have enough data points in history, we can see the rate and the trajectory of progress. Are, are countries improving or are they actually deteriorating? Um, and that's an important point because we know that things can go backwards really fast. Um, it takes a long time to progress, but they can go in the wrong direction quickly, and they do uh, in some situations. So what's the trajectory and what's the rate? And if the country actually changed strategy and went at the rate of the fastest improvers, where would they be? So an example of where we've done this is I've just come from Pakistan this last week, um, and we produced a report to look at what would Pakistan look like at 100 years, uh, at its 100th birthday, its 100 years uh, post-independence, which is in 2047. And so we extrapolated and we said, this is where you're going to be at your current rate. And if you do the things that these other countries are doing, this is how much better off you could be. So it really hopefully creates an inflection point where people realize that there are choices to be made um, and, and they can change the direction and the rate, rate of progress. And you talked about so the geographical and the income level nuances within countries. What about other factors, whether it's ethnic group or gender, for example? Can you tease those out? Yeah, well, I mean, there are things that are not on the index, which are critical for human capital as well. And so one of the things is actually, uh, what's, what are the population dynamics? Because they create the backdrop, if you like. And, and here we've got countries at both ends of the spectrum. We've got... Uh, uh, the countries at the bottom of the index, the bottom 30 countries, many of them have very, very high population growth. So it's very hard for these countries even to actually uh, improve access for their population, even uh, while they're doing that to improve the outcomes. So for, particularly for education, where the, there are large numbers of kids still not in school and the school systems have to expand really fast to cater for all children. And at the same time, they need to improve learning outcomes. So that's a big challenge there. And these are countries where we actually worry about uh, whether these countries are on track to, what we, you know, to have this demographic transition that we know has been a big boost. So we know, we know that in the countries that have had huge poverty reduction, um, they've done this by improving the investment in their people, their human development outcomes, at the same time they've brought their population growth down. And they hit that sweet spot, use a cricket expression, where they get uh, this growth boost from well-educated kids coming into the workforce. The other end of the spectrum are the countries that have got rapidly aging populations and the dependency ratios are deteriorating. And so there's huge pressures to actually have even better uh, educated and more skilled workforce as well. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's important, of course, is that the world is changing on every country. And that, that's the other part of the conversation, which is actually means every, all countries are chasing a moving frontier. 
So, so thinking about the next step, say you've, you've published the first iteration of the index, you say there's the beginnings of some networks of mm. countries that are keen to pursue, draw lessons, exchange experiences. What about the funding side? What's happening there? Well, I think this is actually creating a really important discussion about how much countries are investing, but more importantly, how, how effective is that? And here, there's two, two points to make. Um, for most countries, the most important financing source is their own capacity to raise revenue and to put more of their own resources into these areas. Um, and one, one thing that's really interesting is when you look at the data, the, the, how good an education system is, is not directly correlated to how much you spend. So we have countries that are under-investing, they're not investing enough to get good outcomes, and at the same time, we've got countries that are investing a lot and still not getting good outcomes. So uh, there's, you know, there's a real challenge, not only to raise the amount of money that a country's spending, but also to make sure that you're getting really, uh, that you're putting your money into things that are getting the results. Um, and that's why this learning network of 57 countries is so interesting, because we have all these different types of situations uh, in the countries that have come together to look at these things. Have you got some countries that are under-investing under but nonetheless performing rather well, incidentally? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if you look at, um, say, a country like Thailand, uh, Thailand is an interesting case where they've actually achieved universal health coverage at a fairly modest level of income. They have probably better coverage than many much wealthier countries. So it is possible to get the same in education. Because it's an interesting... Um, I suppose challenge often, isn't it, a trade-off for, for politicians if you've got a three, four, five-year cycle. I mean, tangibly, a road, some piece of physical equipment built pretty quickly, wide perception of benefit very rapidly. Investing in education might be completely intangible, might take 10, 20, 30 years to actually reap the results long beyond the, uh, the disappearance, as it were, of that politician from leadership. Yeah. So how do you make that case on the trade-off? Yeah, well, that's, uh, that's a really great point, and it's really difficult. And that's one of the reasons we've actually developed this index, is to create a wider awareness of this. I think it's the countries that have done well have stayed the course over multiple governments, you know. So governments have transitioned, but they've kept their eye on the importance of this. And so I, I, I think what's really important about this is that countries actually engage all the stakeholders in this discussion. So it doesn't make so much difference if you have a change of political party and government, they know that this is something that's good for everybody. Um, I, I, so I, and I think that that's part of what we're using the index as a kind of way of creating a sense of urgency about this. Um, and I hope it will actually help uh, all the stakeholders to actually have this discussion at the country level. And then thinking about that funding piece, I mean, is the bank itself, for example, gearing up with some new facilities, some reprioritization that would, would focus on human capital investment? Well, we've, we've been expanding our um, financing in education and in, in human development overall. Um, and it's actually, it's interesting, if, uh, our financing in education, health, nutrition, population, social protection, is now about 25% of the total bank financing to countries. So it's, it's actually grown as a share, as our, as our financing capacity has grown. 
but we're trying to look increasingly at countries in different situations and come up with financial products that actually really help them. So for, um, there's, there's a group of middle-income countries that actually need a lot more help because of this learning, what we call this learning crisis. Um, and we're working with the uh, UN, the Education Commission, um, uh, led by Gordon Brown to develop a, a, a new financing instrument that will actually help to create more financing from all the multilateral development banks to the middle-income countries. For the poorest countries, the most important uh, fund for the poorest countries is uh, IDA, which is um, it's a fund which is replenished both by internal reflows from countries that used to be poor that are repaying, but also from donations. And that, that fund is absolutely critical. And for the, for the poorest countries, we actually provide grants and we've been mobilizing more money from that. So that fund has actually substantially grown. In the last three years, it's grown by 50%. And it's gone from a $50 billion fund to $75 billion over three years. So, and that's important actually because the increasingly the, we see that the poorest countries in the world are those that have got wars and conflict um, and a lot of violence, and that's really holding the countries back. So, those are the countries where we're really becoming, we're actually in, engaging much, much more and really focusing our effort on human capital in those countries too. Okay, maybe we should um, open it up a little bit if people have some questions. Yeah, please, there's one over there. There's one behind you. Too. Okay. Um, Do please uh, introduce yourself as well. Uh, my name is uh, Renat Yab. I'm from Palestine, an organization called Khutwa. It's step in English. And we're working with uh, learners in Palestine. So my uh, question actually, um, actually I've been uh, following up the report and the whole report and then the index, and uh, which is very interesting because it's looking at uh, uh, education from a different angle, that we're looking at it from in relation to the economic growth. But my question is, um, is there available details about how you came up with the results of the index re regarding the country profiles where each country can look at the details and uh, all the all the details about it. Yeah, yeah, there is, and in fact, um, we actually we've got some colleagues here who can help you and show you. Uh, uh, in fact, we've even got some of the people who were involved in developing the index here at this conference as well. So, if you contact our team, we can help you. Uh, there is a website, and every country uh, that's in the index, there's 157 countries. Uh, we've still got uh, about 30 countries that we're trying to get into the next iteration of the index. And online, uh, you'll see that there's a two-page profile for every country. And one of the things I should have said is that the, where we can, we've got gender disaggregated data. And this is really important because in education, of course, we've been having a huge effort globally to get girls into school, and that's still a really important challenge. But we're also seeing some important gender differences in learning outcomes for boys and girls. And, and so what you see is this, this learning gap, the, the difference between the years of school and the, and the learn, years of learning. In some cases, we see that girls, once they're in school, they're actually exceeding boys by about a year. Um, 
so that's an important part of the discussion too, is, is, is it's not enough to get kids into school. It's really important to get them learning and, and to engage boys and girls in that process. I take it your question is partly about trying to understand specific policy interventions that some countries might have done in order to... Put also to, to see where we can, where we can find the details about each country in specific. Actually. Sure, sure. Because I'm just thinking, for example, with your network now of 57 countries, is it, that are starting to come together more, will there be some public sharing, perhaps, of their experiences to the wider community? Yeah, well? I mean, one of the things we're trying to do is to have um, country-level dialogue. We just had a human capital summit in Pakistan I was talking about earlier. Um, and, and where we do a deep dive. But one of the things um, that's important in this index is that this is outcomes data, which is the reflection of all the things that country's done over decades in some cases. Um, we also are actually encouraging countries to do surveys which show what's happening today in your schools um, and, and, and in your health clinics and hospitals, because it's really important to find out if, if kids are actually in school, and, and what are they learning today? Because that gives uh, policymakers a good picture of whether the interventions that they're supporting right now are actually working. And so these two things complement each other. Okay, so there's a question over here, yeah. Two. <laughs> uh, I'll take you both. <laughs> Hi, uh, my name is Elena Arias. I'm uh, from the Inter-American Development Bank. I have a short question um, about, uh, I think the index is extremely interesting, so thank you, thank you for that. I'm missing a piece though, that is that while we have built this stock of human capital, we have a challenge at least in Latin American countries who have to use, how to put this stock into productive uses uh, because there are still many distortions in the labor market and many faced by young, uh, young people that just graduated, mainly about informality or working in low quality, low productive uh, jobs. So I was wondering if you have done any analytical work on that or have any recommendations or insights that you can share about how, how to put those the human capital into productive uses and in decreasing distortions that exist in the labor market. Yeah. I mean, this is a huge issue uh, for, for lots of countries where they've got large numbers of young people coming into the labour market who uh, have poor education outcomes and low skills. And, and we know actually that um, young people are already more likely than adults to be unemployed. Uh, young people are three times as likely to be unemployed. So what, what strategies do you have to create a pathway for these kids to get to jobs? And that, frankly, is when we talk to policymakers, and I'm sure it's, it's true for you in Latin America as well, the, the thing they talk about the most is jobs and how to get young people into jobs. And this really uh, is at the intersection of education and, and skills development. And I think increasingly what we're trying to do is to actually create opportunities for second chance education. Because in today's world, uh, it's really important that people become literate and numerate because it's just it's getting even harder to navigate. You know, if you think about a cell phone, you need to be at a basic level of literacy and numeracy to be able to use a cell phone. So, so the, it's it's like an imperative for everybody in t in today's world. 
So there is actually a need and I think a big discussion about what are the best ways to actually teach literacy and numeracy to adults. And here, actually, the evidence is pretty mixed, so it's something that we need to keep working at. The second thing is on the skills side, the best skills development programs have a very strong link to private sector. And here, I think, uh, bringing, um, finding ways to actually ensure that skills development programs are not driven by what governments think are needed, but have a very strong demand side uh, information and, and are really driven and owned by private sector. And there's some great examples of that happening around the world. Um, India has a huge program called Skills India where they've really connected uh, private sector. And it's one where we're actually, we think it's such a good example that we're actually bringing ministers from other countries to, to, to look at, at what they're doing. Um, but I think, I think it's actually really tough. Um, you know, the evidence, you know, adults learn in very different ways from the way kids learn. And so the way we deliver uh, uh, education to adults, a second chance, has to actually take account of some of that. Okay. Bye. Uh, Jenny Anderson from Quartz. I want, you were talking about learning adjusted years of schooling, and I was curious whether in the debate there was anything about non-test scores, because that's obviously a big discussion among educators themselves, whether we should be measuring soft skills, whether there is that kind of data around the world, whether you could use it. You guys talk about whether test scores was the best measure to use, and uh, maybe in the future, whether you'd adjust it if these measures improved? We'd love to adjust it. We would love to have the data to measure social and, and emotional skills, because we know in the world of the current and the future direction of work, you know, work is becoming much more complex and workers need to have more sophisticated behavioral skills. You know, they need to have persistence, tenacity, problem solving, collaboration. These are things that are really, really important. Um, and, you know, the best education systems in the world are teaching it, but it's actually not measured across a lot of countries. The other thing that's not measured and is not in this index, there are two other things that are important. One is, Early, early childhood milestones that are critical for later development. So beyond stunting, what are the things that are important to measure there? And then the other thing is the learning that happens when kids leave secondary school. And our index stops at the moment at 18 because we just don't have a global databases of that sort of data. So we'd like to build it out. Um, I, was, I, was, I just have to tell an anecdote because uh, I, I tell a lot of people what, uh, uh, we have a family, I'm from New Zealand, we have a family WhatsApp group. And uh, so the parents of our grandchildren post the school's reports on the WhatsApp group. And a few months ago I got the school report of my 13-year-old granddaughter. And it started with the child's, the student's self-reflection. And her opening statement was, I have learned I need to improve my inquiry skills so that I can better plan my work and I know what I need to get done. And I looked at this and said, uh, wow, the, what sort of 13-year-old writes this? And my colleague, Jaime Saavedra, looked at it and he said, what sort of teacher teaches this? The <laughs> uh, question over there, please. Yeah. Thank you. Coming from a small Euro European country that is experience, experiencing a big brain drain. So we are ranked 27th according to human capacity index, uh, capital index, and that's quite high. That's okay. 
uh, the, uh, on the other side, uh, on the Global Competitiveness Index, a capacity to attract and retain talents, we are 134. So I imagine if there is an index of uh, talent waste, we would be absolute world champions. So my question is, if we cannot count on that capacity, whose capacity it is? Which country is that? Which, which is your country? Uh, Serbia. Okay, yeah, I was, I, I was actually uh, telling Andrew that Serbia did very well on the Human Capital Index. Uh, this is a big issue, and it's actually an important strategic issue for some countries. I also come from a country that loses a lot of its uh, talent. Um, you know, we have a population of 5 million, but 20% are living abroad at any point in time. Um, and I think it actually uh, it needs to be followed up by a good understanding of what is actually taking your talent away and what you can do to attract them back. Um, and and it, 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 that strategy is, differs from country to country. There's a lot of countries where, on one hand, they're losing they're best educated, and on the other hand, they're importing low-skilled workers at the same time. So you have to look at the total picture of you know, who's doing the work in your country and where are your workers going and what, what you can do about that. Because in some cases, it, it, one is actually driving the other because a lot of it has to do with whether uh, the returns to education are actually enough to keep people in your country. So it, it, it is something that needs a lot, a lot more analysis. Is it actually having an impact in your country? Is there a bit of political reaction to the, the rankings? Oh, well, political reaction, uh, reactions was that uh, it is confirmation of good reforms. Well, uh, that's, that's not exactly what is going on. But, uh, it's not the whole story. Yeah, yeah, yes. I think there is a spillover effect and that there are some, some big, bigger countries attracting all our labor force, especially high, highly qualified, and uh, small European countries have more or less the same destiny. So we are exporting the, the bright people. Sure, thanks. But you can market your country as a great place to raise children. That's <laughs> <laughs> your behind. Thank you for that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Sorry, I'm almost directly behind you, so oh, I'm not Sorry. in your head. Just a quick question, and it's kind of following on from, from the last question. We live in South Africa, which is a very much a, almost a two-tier uh, education system. Uh, I, I went through the, uh, the, the Human Capital Index there just very briefly, and my question is, is in regarding the analysis of the, and the deep dive into countries where and I don't think South Africa is the only one in the world where there's a massive difference between the schooling system um, or, or the schooling systems. And how does the HCI uh, combat that and kind of aggregate it, so to speak, um, in, in terms of collecting the data for a country overall? I think that's something where the Human Capital Index needs to be augmented with something that's more like the service delivery indicators, which give you a snapshot of what's the quality uh, uh, of what's happening today. Um, and this, this can be really important because the, you can find a huge variation. I mean, in South Africa is a, is a well-known case and an extreme case, but, but, but it's, it's not unique to South Africa for sure. 
Um, and that's something that you need to, I mean, with the bank can help you with this, and, and we, we try to generate this, this data. Um, is not tr I don't think it's a situation so much in South Africa, but one of the things we observe in education systems in developing countries is that the quality of learning is so poor that many, many families are looking for private solutions. Um, and in some cases, very poor families are going into extreme hardship in order to actually do that. So there is, I, I mean, we say, and actually in developing countries, about half the kids are simply not learning. And so we actually have to have a huge push on improving the quality of learning outcomes. And frankly, it starts with teachers. It's, you know, it's all about teachers and making sure that teachers have got all the help that they can get uh, to do this. And, and, and it's a huge, I don't want to underestimate how serious it is because the teachers are themselves often the products of very frail education systems. So it, 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 it is, we, we're calling it a learning crisis, frankly, because it's, it's something that we actually have to focus on relentlessly and it's going to take a decade or so to turn it around. And I think South Africa really needs to grapple with this itself. Um, because as I said, the world's getting more demanding. I mean, this frontier is moving on all countries. Okay, there's one over here, please. I love the, the lady, hat. Sorry, it's a lady here first. Oh, I, okay. <laughs> the man with the great hat gets after you, after you. <laughs> you go first. Then. <laughs> Hi, uh, my name is Dua Mohammed, and I'm from Massacre Foundation. I have two quick questions. Um, one is, um, while there are a lot of challenges across 150 um, countries, is there one main theme that um, you are seeing across uh, these countries that is working or has the potential to work amongst them all? My second quick question is, um, is, language, is language taken into account with these measurements and analysis, and are you seeing any positivity or common things with language? Um, I think if there's one thing that we know um, from the learning outcomes is that the countries that do well really value teachers. Teachers are themselves really well educated, and that it's highly it's a high status occupation and teachers get a lot of support. Um, so that, that's, I think, true um, a, across middle income and high income countries. On language, um, I don't know the answer on the test scores, but um, you know, I'm from New Zealand and this is a very live debate in New Zealand because um, we came very close as a country to losing fluency in our indigenous language about 30 or 40 years ago, this really came to a head. The last generation of native speakers were um, uh, old, in their older years. And, and that has turned around in part because uh, we created a language movement of preschools, and then uh, which ensured that children actually, Maori children, the indigenous population, were actually being cared for in preschools with native speakers. And that created a huge demand on the education system to meet their needs when these kids hit primary age. And that has really driven a big uh, movement to actually where the, where the state curriculum is af actually offered in different languages in, in, in bilingually or in total immersion Maori or in English with a lot of Maori in it. And that has actually improved the quality of learning outcomes. 
Um, so I'm actually really uh, particularly interested. I, I, it's not an area I'm an expert in, but I can really see that the language of tuition can make a huge difference, particularly for minority groups who are somewhat left out from the mainstream of the education provision. Okay, Annette, I'm afraid um, we're going to have to clear out the room, but uh, thank you very much. I'm sure hopefully you could, come out, you could discuss with her afterwards. Uh, I'm afraid we're, we're going to get up, but I'm sure Annette will be around for a bit more. So please thank her. <laughs>